You may be seated. Well, good morning. As always, I'm thankful for this opportunity to worship with you and to preach to you from God's sufficient word. Well, this morning we were planning to have Brother Pat McCoy preach to us on the subject of missions. And so although we are not able to have him here with us this morning to preach on that subject, we decided to not deviate from that subject. And so this morning I plan to preach with God's help a topical message on the subject of missions. The title of our sermon today is The Mandate, Motivation, Message, and Milieu of Missions. And I know that's a lot of M's, but if I could have thought of more M's, I'd probably have more points in my sermon. And so my limited vocabulary is to your advantage this morning. Well, let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessings on our time this morning. Our Father and our most gracious God, we do pray that you would bless us this morning as we consider the subject of missions. Lord, would you encourage and challenge us this morning to be obedient to your command, to go into all the world, to make disciples so that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would receive the full reward for all of his suffering. And it is in his name that we do pray. Amen. Amen. Now, as we get started, I want to remind you of a phrase that I stated in my greeting. I said that it was good to have the opportunity to preach to you from God's sufficient word. This doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture is one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith in general and of Reformed theology in particular. In many ways, the retrieval of the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture was the major cause of the Reformation, thus it being a central tenet in Reformed or Protestant theology. Now, what do we mean when we say that the word of God is sufficient? Does it mean that the Bible can teach you how to perform brain surgery? Is it sufficient for that? Does it mean that the Bible can teach you how to rebuild a transmission in your car? Well, no, of course not. The reason is because the Bible was not given for those particular purposes. No, what we mean when we say that the Bible is sufficient is that it is sufficient to accomplish the purpose for which it has been given. And so the question before us is, what is the purpose of the scriptures? Well, I think the Apostle Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, summarizes the purpose of scripture well in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. And you can turn there if you like. 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. I'm not going to read this text, but I'm going to simply summarize it for you. <clears throat> there he says that the word of God, the scripture, is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, the scripture and the scripture alone is that special and necessary revelation of God whereby he reveals to us the only way of salvation, which is, of course, through, the, through faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
further in that same passage, the Apostle Paul tells us that God's inspired word is profitable or sufficient for teaching us sound doctrine, for reproving us, and for correcting us when we are wrong. And further, it is sufficient to train us in righteousness. That is, it is sufficient to, tr to train us in how to live in a way that is pleasing to God in accordance with his revealed will. And so, taking all that together, this text teaches us that the word of God is sufficient to equip us for every good work. Now, it is this idea of good, of good works that I want to think about with you for a moment. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, is a classic passage on salvation. And in that passage, it culminates by saying that we have been saved for the purpose of doing good works to the glory of God. We have been saved, created anew, so that we might walk in good works. That's what the passage teaches. And so we have one passage of the scripture that teaches us that scripture is sufficient to equip us for every good work. And we have another passage that teaches us that we have been saved for the explicit purpose that we might walk in good works. Well, in light of that, it seems to me that the subject of good works is a fairly important subject that we need to pay close attention to as the people of God. And so as we think about good works, the question that should come to our minds is, what is a good work? What is required for any work to be rightly classified as a good work? Well, this time I do invite you, if you would, turn to the back of your Trinity hymnal. If you have a Trinity hymnal, turn to the back of your Trinity hymnal and find page 678. There you will find our confession of faith, and on that page you will find chapter 16, which is titled, Of Good Works. And I would like you to notice with me paragraph number one. Here it gives a very brief but needed definition of good works. It says, good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word and not such as without warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. In other words, for something to be a good work, it must be that which, that, it must be that which God has commanded to be done in his word, in his sufficient word. A good work is a work that is in agreement with the revealed will of God for our lives. To put it simply, a good work is the keeping of God's law. But is that, all, is that all that is required to do a good work? Well, in one sense, absolutely yes. If you would be one who walks in good works, you must be one who lives your life in accordance with the will of God as it has been revealed in his law, that is, in his word. But in another sense, we need to make sure that we recognize that there is a difference between outwardly keeping the commandments of God and truly keeping the commandments of God. The Pharisees, for example, they were known for what? For their meticulous keeping of the law of God. And yet, their hearts were exceedingly wicked. Their fruit was bad fruit. Their works were not good works. 
They were in fact not keepers of the law, but rather they were breakers of God's law. So what must be present for our keeping of God's commandments to be good works? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Paul, over in Romans 14, 23, says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so we see here that in order for any work, for any good work to be done, it must be done in faith. It must proceed from a heart of faith that believes in God and further that believes in the promises of God. But there's still more, there's still more that must be present for a good work to be considered a good work. What is the motivation that must precede the action of good works? Well, that motivation is love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3 is probably the classic passage on this. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers that, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so we have seen that for any work to be truly a good work, it, has, it must have three necessary components. It's a three-legged stool, if you will. First, it must be according to the revealed will of God and his law. Second, it must proceed from a heart of faith. And third, it must be motivated by a heart of love towards God and towards one another. Brothers and sisters, these three components of proper law keeping are very important for us to understand. You see, if you are still in your sins, if you are an unbeliever, you cannot keep the law properly. You cannot do anything that can be classified as a good work. The only way that you can do anything that is pleasing in the sight of God is that you must first be reconciled unto God through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember, the law is not our way to God. The Bible reveals to us that there is only one way to be made right with God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you view the law as a means by which you might, might win the reward of life that we talked about in Sunday school, in other words, if you relate to the law as a covenant of works, you will fall short. In fact, you've already fallen short. And as a result, you will die. And you will perish in your sins under the just penalty of the law. But if your acceptance with God and your hope of eternal life is based upon the finished work of Christ on your behalf, then you can rejoice. For if you, have been re if you have been reconciled unto God through faith in Christ, the Bible teaches that not only have you been forgiven of your sin, forgiven of your law-breaking, but that you've also had the perfect law-keeping obedience of Christ credited to your account. God now treats you as one who is righteous in his sight. This is the doctrine of justification. But that's not all that happens in your salvation. 
if you have been saved, God has also done a miraculous work in you whereby he has written his law upon your heart. This means that as a result of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that every Christian, by virtue of what it means to be saved, loves the Lord Jesus Christ and obeys him because they have been given a new heart that desires to obey the law of God. And so the Christian finds that they now have a new relationship to the law. For the Christian, the law sweetly complies with the gospel, and therefore the law is not a burden, but a great help to you as you seek to follow after, worship, and love your Savior. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so every Christian loves Jesus and therefore obeys his commandments. Not perfectly, but the disposition of their heart is obedience motivated by love. For he who has been forgiven much, loves much. And so to summarize where we have been so far, we have established that the scripture is sufficient for the purpose of equipping us for every good work. Secondly, we have seen that we've been saved for the very purpose that we might walk in good works. Further, we have seen that a good work is simply the proper keeping of the law of God. And lastly, we have seen that this proper keeping of God's law, this walking in good works, is only possible for the person who has been reconciled to God through the gospel and thus enabled by the grace of God to obey him from a heart of faith and love. Now, what does any of this have to do with the subject of missions? You might be asking yourself that question. And I'm glad you asked the question. And that leads me to my first point as we discuss the subject of missions. So let's begin by looking at the mandate for missions. When it comes to missions, I think a proper place to start is with the following question. Do the sufficient scriptures reveal to us that God mandates or commands missions? In other words, are you commanded by God in his holy word to participate in the mission of God? That's an important question with an important answer. And I want to begin addressing this question by raising a point to you that you may have never thought about before. And I'll do that by way of a question. Is missions biblical or is the Bible missional? It's a bit of a trick question, and I think you'll see that as we go forward. Pastor Thomas actually brought this up last week, where he quoted from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, which basically describes for us the purpose of the Gospel of John. John says there, these are written, what, what he has written in the Gospel of John, John, this has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself says, For God so loved the world that he gave or sent his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so in John 3.16, we have the mission of God declared to us. God sent his Son into the world so that sinners may be saved. In fact, that's what it says in the very next verse, John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the mission of God. 
with Jesus himself being the missionary, capital M. But how are we to believe upon Jesus? The mission of God is that we would believe upon Christ, right? To the salvation of our souls. But how are we to believe upon Jesus? If we've never heard of him. How can you believe upon him if you've never heard of him? How are we to believe upon him without hearing? This is, this is the Romans 10 passage. Thus, the purpose of the Bible. The Bible was written so that we might hear of Christ and believe upon him. Dear ones, the Bible is a missional book. It was written for the very purpose of revealing Christ the Savior to sinners. So the Bible itself is missional. But now we must answer the question, is missions biblical? And the answer there is absolutely it is. We've already seen that the Bible reveals to us what the mission of God is. God sent his son into the world so that, we might, so that the world might be saved through him. So God sends Jesus into the world, but then the Bible teaches us that Jesus sends us, his people, into the world. John 17, 18 clearly says this. Jesus says in his prayer to his father, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so here we have the very basis of missions. God sent Christ. Christ sends his church. Now, that's the concept clearly revealed in Scripture. But back to our original question. Does God mandate or command missions? Well, now that we have a bit more information, we can narrow the question down a bit, I think. God sent Jesus. Jesus sends his church. So the question can be framed, does Jesus mandate or command his people to participate in the mission of God? And the answer is, of course, yes. Perhaps the most well-known place that such a mandate is recorded for us is, is in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And you can turn there if you like. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Which, of course, we know as the Great Commission. Now, the word commission can be defined in the following way. It is an instruction, a command, or a duty given to a person or group of people. And so the Great Commission is a great mandate or command that Christ, that Christ gives to his people, the church. Now let us hear that command that Jesus gives to the church. Verse 18, And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here's the mandate. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so here in this great mandate from King Jesus himself, he commands the apostles and by extension the whole church to participate in the very mission of God. And so we have seen the mandate for missions. And I don't want that just to fly over your heads. I want it to stick. Jesus Christ, the King of glory, has commanded, he has mandated that you, his people, participate in the mission of God. It is not optional. Remember, 
the mark of a true Christian is one who has the very law of God written on his heart. So let me emphasize and apply that to you by way of a question. If a desire to participate in the mission of God on this earth has not been stamped on your heart by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, what biblical claim do you have to call yourself a Christian? Are you walking in good works? Are you properly keeping and obeying the law of God? Are you obeying the commandment of Christ? Now, the Bible doesn't use the phrase Great Commission. That is a phrase that has been attributed to this commandment from Christ to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. But I do think it's a good phrase because I think it makes a connection for us that I think is very important to see. Now, in some ways, we've already made the connection, but I want to continue to press it. The Great Commission is a commandment. It's a great commandment. It's the great commandment. Where else do we see in the scriptures Jesus talking about the great commandment? You remember in Matthew 22, where one of the Pharisees comes to Jesus and asks the following question. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus here has summarized for us the law of God. He has summarized the revealed will of God for our lives. He has described for us in summary form what it means to walk in good works. Love God and love neighbor. That's the great commandment. And so with that in mind, what connection do we see between what Jesus says in Matthew 22 and what he says in Matthew 28? The Great Commission, the biblical mandate to participate in the mission of God, is nothing less than the command to love God and love neighbor put into action. That's what it is. That's what missions is. It's Love for God and love for neighbor worked out in the context of a fallen world. And so that moves us to our next point, the motivation for missions. And I've already given you what the motivation is. It is love for God and love for neighbor. And so as we flesh this out, I want to begin with love for neighbor as the motivation for missions, and then we'll come back and look at love for God. <clears throat> and so first, love for neighbor as a motivation for missions. Now, I want us to approach this with some level of sober-mindedness. Let's not dodge a most important question as we think about love for neighbor and its connection to missions. The question is, what will happen to our neighbors, to our fellow man, to our fellow image bearers if they die in a lost condition? 
Well, as it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, where a tree falls, there it lies. Brothers and sisters, if our lost neighbors around us die in a lost condition outside of a saving relationship with Christ, they will be sent to hell. I'll say that again. They will be sent to hell. They will be sent to that place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there they will suffer under, under the omnipotent and terrible wrath of a holy God for all eternity. There will be no mercy for them there. No relief from their suffering. Not even for a moment. And it will be the fierce wrath of God poured out on them and it will be unrelenting. It will be constant and it will be severe for all eternity. No doubt their punishment will be just, but nonetheless, they will be punished. Again, don't let that fly over your head. Let that truth grab a hold of your heart. Let's think about God's heart in relation to the punishment of the wicked. God says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Think about it for a moment. God is the offended party when it comes to sin. As David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And yet, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, the Bible says, as we've already seen, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Do we have the heart of God towards the lost? Let's think about the heart of Christ towards the lost. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man, Christ, came to seek and to save the lost. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world on mission to save sinners. Do you have the heart of Christ for the lost? Think of the Apostle Paul. You remember in Romans 9 where he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul loved his fellow Jews that were lost. But Paul also loved the Gentiles. He suffered much for their sake that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and thus escape the wrath to come. And so, brothers and sisters, do we have the heart of the Apostle Paul, that great first century missionary for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we have his heart for the lost? Listen to the heart of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, as he speaks of his love for the lost and his concern for souls. He says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. 
And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Brothers and sisters, may we be reminded of the words of Christ. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet loses his soul? Here we see something of the value of a human soul. Your fellow image bearers are worth more than anything else on this planet. Therefore, we should spare no expense in loving our neighbors. As the Apostle Paul says, we should gladly be willing to spend and be spent for the souls of our lost neighbors. And so, brothers and sisters, would you participate in the mission of God motivated by a love for your neighbor? Secondly, as we consider the motivation for missions, we come to a motivation that is even greater and more foundational than love for neighbor. And that is, of course, love for God as the motivation for missions. If you would, turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 6. And I would like you to notice there verse number 9. There we have Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, at first glance, it seems like what I just read was the greeting in the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But actually what we have here is the greeting, our Father in heaven, which is followed by a separate phrase, hallowed be your name. That phrase is a petition. It is the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. And it is very instructive to us. You see, in this short petition, hallowed be your name, there we find the very essence of all true missionary endeavor. You see, the end goal of missions is not the salvation of sinners. That is a means to an end. But rather, the end goal is the hallowing of God's name. It is the worship of God. I believe it was John Piper who once said that, that missions exist because worship does not. What do saved sinners do? They worship the God of their salvation. They give glory to God. What, what do we gather here today to do? To worship our God and to give Him glory. That's what we do as saved sinners. When a person gets saved, they go from being a person who did not view God rightly. They were as the Romans one man, who although they knew God, they did not honor Him as such, nor did they give thanks. But when a wicked, God-hating sinner is saved, the blinders are removed from his eyes and from his heart, and he now sees God as that altogether lovely one, who alone is worthy of worship. And so the very heartbeat of a redeemed sinner is to cry out, Sole Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And I hope that's your heart. 
that that's the heartbeat of your very life, that you cry out, Sola Dea Gloria, in everything that you do. But, as a redeemed sinner contemplates the infinite glory of the triune God, he quickly comes to the realization that he, by himself, cannot give God the glory that he and he alone deserves. Brothers and sisters, God is worthy of more worship than I can give him by myself. I think of the hymn that Charles Wesley wrote, And Can It Be? And in that hymn, he paints for us a remarkable word picture for us to think about. He says, In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. And so you see the picture. You have this first angel created, this first seraph. And he's by himself. And what, what does a seraph do? A seraph worships God. That's what they were created to do, and that's what they do. They worship God. And so he begins to worship God with all of his might. And yet the seraph, with all of his angelic might, cannot give, the, give God all the glory that he deserves. In vain he tries to do this by himself. Dear ones, a missionary heart begins with this great realization. God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, and I cannot do that on my own. I need help. We need help. Every tongue on this planet should be singing praise to our God. For God is worthy of that and so much more. I thought about that as we, as we were singing the, the hymn earlier. And I wasn't singing because I was trying to save my voice a little bit. But it was, a, it was a joy just to sit and listen to you sing. And to think, this is what we were created to do. To worship our God. And yet there are thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions, billions upon billions, who do not worship God. And God is worthy of their worship. Brothers and sisters, love for God should fill our hearts with a burning desire to see God receive the glory that is due His name. That is the goal of missions. We see this prophesied all over the Old Testament. Malachi 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Psalm 72, verse 19. And blessed be his glorious name forever. May all the earth be filled with his glory. Habakkuk 2, 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's just to name a few from the Old Testament. You see, the great goal of missions is that God will be glorified all over his creation. But as we move into the New Testament, we clearly see that the glory of God is focused in on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 5.12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what he's worthy of from everyone. In Philippians 2 we read, As a result of the work of Christ, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The great goal of missions is that the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be, would be made known and exalted all over creation. One of the great missionary stories that I think does a good job of illustrating this is what has been called the Moravian Call. And I'm sure many of you have heard the story before, but some of you may have not. The story goes as follows. <clears throat> Two young Moravians, and by Moravian, uh, this would have meant that they were part of the Moravian Church, which has its roots with John Huss, who would have been one of the earliest reformers. So two young, two young Christians, these two men, heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner, slave owner, had 3,000 slaves. And the owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked on this island, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense, he said. And so, 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa were brought to an island in the Atlantic where they were doomed to live and die without ever hearing of Christ. But when these two young men heard about this, they devised a plan. They decided that if we can't come as clergymen, then we'll come as slaves. As the story goes, these men were willing to sell themselves into slavery. Now, it is unclear whether or not they were successful in selling themselves into slavery. But it is clear that they were able to go to that island and they did have some success in preaching to these slaves. Now, as you can imagine, this desire of theirs was met with much opposition. Now, who do you think opposed them? Their family, right? Even their, even their church. It says, this is not necessary. This is, this is too extreme to do what you're doing. You don't need to sell yourselves into slavery. It's too extreme. But as their families wept over them and tried to persuade them not to go, their response to their family members was this. May the lamb that was slain receive the full reward for all of his suffering. The Lord Jesus Christ was worthy of worship from those slaves. And these two men were willing to, to lay down their lives so that Christ might be honored among these people. This became known as the Moravian call. But really, this is just simply the biblical call to missions that is laid upon all of Christ's disciples. It's not laid upon a select few. That is the call that is laid upon all of Christ's disciples. Our king is worthy to receive the full reward for all of his suffering. And so, brothers and sisters, would you participate in the work of missions motivated by love for him? Well, to this point, we've clearly seen that there is a biblical mandate for missions that comes from the very mouth of Christ himself. And secondly, we have seen that there is a great motivation behind participating in missions, that motivation being love for God and love for neighbor. And so, surely at this point, you're saying to yourself, well, I have a clear command 
and I have the proper motivation for missions, I want to be involved in missions. So now the question becomes, how? How can I participate in the mission of God? Well, this leads us to our next point, which is the message of missions. Now, I started the sermon by pointing you to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And I had multiple reasons for doing that. But one of those reasons is that as we move into the question of how do we participate in missions, we must be thoroughly convinced that the Scriptures are sufficient to teach us how we are to engage in the mission of God. Now, the first thing we must realize that we must come to understand when it comes to the how-to of missions is that missions is primarily a theological endeavor. It's primarily a theological endeavor. Missions is ultimately the proclamation of a message. Further, missions is governed by sola scriptura. It is governed by the scripture alone. We don't get to decide the message that is proclaimed. You understand that? We don't get to tweak the message. We don't get to round off the edges. We don't get to contextualize the message. No. Missions is the proclamation of what God has told us to proclaim. Remember in John 17, verse 18, we read that Jesus said, Just as the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you into the world. But what is, what is he sending them into the world with? Well, if you look back to verse 8 of John 17, it reads, Jesus says, For I have given them the words that you gave me. We've seen in the Gospel of Mark, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for some time now, at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we saw that Jesus came doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, and it is that same gospel that he gave to his apostles for them to proclaim. Paul said in Romans 1 that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And then later on in that same chapter, he goes on to say that he is not ashamed of that gospel. You see, the gospel, the good news, the message concerning the Son of God and the salvation that is offered through Him, that message belongs to God. It is not the invention of man. It's God's gospel, and He has given it to us so that we might proclaim it just as He has given it. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul did not go forth in his own wisdom. He went forth proclaiming the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. And he understood that this message was the power of, of, it was the power of God for salvation for everyone who would believe. And so how do we participate in the mission of God? By proclaiming what God has done to save sinners and calling all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel so that they might be saved and thus be brought into that multitude that no man can number that will be worshiping the Lamb for all eternity. And so the content of the gospel is revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures and nowhere else. The Scriptures are sufficient. 
Now that we've seen the content of that message, now let us consider the necessity of the proclamation of that message. At this time, I would ask you if you would, once again, uh, turn in the back of your Trinity hymnals to page 681. 681. And if you would, notice with me chapter 20, <clears throat> entitled, The Gospel and the Extent of the Grace Thereof. Now, a brief history as to why this chapter is in our Confession of Faith. Because, if you'll notice, you won't find this chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith that was written some 30 years prior to the Baptist Confession. This chapter was added because there was a false teaching that had begun to be taught in England at the time. Now, what was that false teaching? That false teaching was was the teaching that it was not necessary for a person to hear the gospel in order to be saved. That was spreading like wildfire through the churches in England during the time that, this confession, that our confession was written. Groups like the Quaker movement taught that the knowledge of the gospel was profitable and comfortable, but they go on to say this, but not absolutely needful for salvation. Closer in, Thomas Grantham, who was a general Baptist during this period of time taught the following. Those who never hear of Christ may be saved as long as they live faithful and virtuous lives. You hear what he just did? He said someone can be saved by their law keeping. That they, never, they don't even have to hear the gospel. As long as they live upright lives, they can go to heaven. But even in the midst of the particular Baptist in the 17th century, this false teaching was present. Thomas Collier, who planted many particular or Reformed Baptist churches in England during the century, he ended up repudiating his Calvinism in the 1670s and taught the following. He said, Though there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, yet we must own that many have been saved and may be saved by that name that never heard of him. And, so could not, and if they never heard of him, they could not have faith in him. For we may not suppose that any shall die the second death for not believing in the Son of God crucified who never heard of him. You hear what he's saying, right? He says there are people who can go to heaven, not taste the second death, even though they never believed upon Christ. Our confession of faith addresses this very issue in chapter 20. Notice with me, if you would, paragraph number 2. It says, This promise of Christ and salvation by him, that is the gospel message, is revealed only by the word of God. Neither do the works of creation or providence with the light of nature make discovery of Christ or of grace by him so much as in a general or obscure way, much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise or gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance." Our forefathers made the point clear. It is only through the revelation of the gospel, through the word of God, that a person can be saved. The scriptures make the point even more clear. Romans 10, verses 13 through 17 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We see missions right there. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The work of missions depends upon the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gospel is revealed only in the word of God. It's absolutely necessary. There is no missions apart from the scriptures. Now, I want to add this point in here. In recent years, there has been a growing interest in and appreciation for general revelation among Reformed Christians. And this is all well and good. It's good to appreciate general revelation. But general revelation will not cause the glory of God to spread across the earth as the waters cover the sea. No, the mission of God depends upon the special revelation of God which has been given to us in the written word, the Bible. We must go into all the nations and proclaim, we must do this, we must go to every nation, hold the scriptures up and say, thus saith the Lord, Jesus is king, repent and believe the gospel. That's the only thing that will spread the glory of God across the earth. And so the scriptures and the message that it contains is absolutely necessary for the work of missions. Well, to this point, we've seen the mandate, the motivation, and the message of missions. And so now let us bring this sermon to a close by looking at our last point, which I've entitled the milieu of missions. And I regret that Brother David's not here this morning because he would have appreciated that title as one who works in the field of social work. Um, I realize that the word milieu is probably not a common word for most of us. But the word milieu simply means the setting or environment in which something occurs. That's what the word milieu means. You got, you know, you've ever heard of something, uh, something that's in lieu of? Lieu means place. In place of, mil, mil, milieu is middle place. In the middle, in the setting, in the, in the middle of that place. That's what the word means, milieu. And so as we consider the work of missions, I thought it would be appropriate to look at the setting in which missions occurs. Now, first, it is important that we realize that missions is a work that is done through the local church. The God-ordained institution that has been given the mandate to do missions is the local church and only the local church. And this point really deserves a whole sermon, but for the sake of time, I'm simply going to summarize. Perhaps the classic text on this is 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16 which says that it is the church which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the text goes on to say what that truth is. It is the message concerning Christ that we have looked at in our last point. The church, the body of Christ, has been given the unique task of proclaiming and defending the truth of the gospel. The church, and only the church, has been commissioned by Christ to go to all nations and authoritatively proclaim the gospel of God, which is the, the God-ordained means of making disciples. And then the church, and only the church, has authority to baptize these disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And then the church has been commanded by Christ to bring those baptized disciples under its oversight to teach them to obey all things that Christ has commanded. You see, missions is not primarily the work of the church. Missions is exclusively the work of the local church. You see, the Great Commission teaches us that the work of missions is simply this. It is one biblical church authoritatively proclaiming the gospel, and as disciples are made, they are to be baptized and gathered into a, lo into a local body, thus creating a new local church. It's just one biblical church planting another biblical church. And it's precisely here that I hope that you are encouraged. Oftentimes, when we think about missions, we think that the only way to be involved in missions is to be sent out as a missionary. Now, to be sure, when we use the word missionary in a technical sense, we are referring to an elder qualified man who, has been, who is being sent out by a local church to, uh, to authoritatively proclaim the gospel message with the intended purpose of seeing a new church planted. And that's true. That's what a missionary is. But remember, the work of missions is the work of the local church. It's not solely the work of a few particular people in the local church. It's the work of all of us combined. We've all been called to participate in the mission of God. And so would you participate in the mission of God? Well, let me give you a good starting place. Go out into the foyer after the service ends and go read that covenant that is hanging on the wall. That covenant that you signed when you became a member of this church. And endeavor with all your might by the grace of God to keep those covenant promises. Because, brothers and sisters, the reality is this. Mature churches, churches that are filled with people who are growing in their love for God and their love for neighbor, will be used by God to make disciples and to plant biblical churches both here domestically and beyond to the glory of God. God uses mature churches to plant new, new churches that are biblical. Now, I understand there are, there are unbiblical churches that plant other unbiblical churches, but what are, what are they planting? Unbiblical churches. But if we would be a biblical church that would, that would participate in the mission of God to see other churches planted, we must be a mature church ourselves. And that starts with each member taking seriously their covenant promises to God and to one another. And so go read that covenant and endeavor by the grace of God to keep those covenant promises. And God will use you in his mission to spread his glory over the face of this earth. And lastly... I want to make this point, and I'll be brief. The work of missions has been given to the local church, but the church does the work of missions in what context? It does the work of missions in the context of a fallen world. And so let me make this clear. As we as a local church seek to be faithful to our king by proclaiming his gospel both here and abroad, we, what we're going to find out is this. It's impossible in the strength of men. It's impossible in the strength of men. It has been well said that the work of missions is first hard, then it is impossible, and then it is done. 
When we go and proclaim the gospel to a lost world, we are literally like Ezekiel, who are standing before a valley of dry bones. And further, not only are we proclaiming the gospel to spiritually dead sinners, we are being opposed by the power, by the powers of darkness. So it's a tall task, right? We're to preach the gospel to dead sinners, all the while being opposed by the powers of darkness. And so may we remember that the vanguard of missions, the point of the spear and the work of missions is prayer. We are dependent upon the sovereign God to do that which we cannot do in our own strength. Only he can grant eternal life to those who are dead in their sins. But, we may, but may we also remember that God has an elect people in every nation. And his appointed means to bring salvation to his elect is his church being faithful to participate in the work of missions. So we can't do the work on our own. Only God can make it happen, but he's called us to participate in it because that's the very means that he has ordained to bring salvation to his elect and thus spread his glory across the face of this earth. But dear ones, take heart. The Lord Jesus Christ says that as we faithfully participate in the mission of God, that as we walk in the good works that he has created, for, created, created us for, it says in Matthew 28 that he will be with us even to the end of the age. A lot of people struggle because they feel like, well, I don't feel the presence of God. I feel like he's so far away from me. I go through my everyday life and I just don't feel God. I don't feel his presence. Would you know the blessed presence of Christ in your life? Then be faithful to his great commission to go to all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Because as you do so, the Bible says, Christ himself says that he will be with you. And so if you would grow in your relationship to Christ, be obedient to his command, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey all things that Christ has commanded, and this to the glory of God, our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your sufficient word. We are, thank you, we are so thankful for this word that has made us wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus and is able to equip us for every good work.